right, people, welcome back to I Eat Movies. This is I Eat Movies 16. This is The Clash of Two Sevens, um, perhaps our most masturbatory episode ever. I hope uh, so. <laughs> I got my man Mike here. What do you say, Mike? Hey, man, how's it going? Back from a little R&R in Disney World. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you know, we apologize for uh, having this episode go a little bit later um, in between our last episode uh, on Igby Goes Down, but I am very happy to be home. Once again, eating and talking movies with my pal Dino. So how how's he you, sir? Oh, pretty good. We just did a Thanksgiving, and uh, yeah, I was very proud to produce to uh, establish a um, a uh, specific Filipino dessert for two different Thanksgivings that I went to that involved uh, purple ube, the uh, purple yam. That's another story. Look at uh, you. <laughs> other other eating things, but um, yes. Yeah, so yeah, we are we are doing this episode at the end of November. Um, right after Thanksgiving, knowing that like the undertow of the holidays is about to suck us all in, but, um, we had this idea a while back and wanted to throw out this, I, this concept of, uh, Mike and I arguing, um, not just with each other, but with ourselves, um, (laughs) arguing for the, the one best movie. Uh, from each of each from the each okay maybe maybe in English this time the one best single movie that each of us thinks came out in the year we were born. Um, some yeah. of our listeners who pay attention, I'm so sorry. Uh, some of our pay, pay, uh, listeners may know that uh, Mike and I are are ten years apart, and uh, I was born in '77, he in '87. Yo. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and this is uh, the, <laughs> we're hoping this will be an episode that people will will find easy to listen to. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, shit, you never know. That's wishful uh, thinking. That's really wishful <laughs> thinking because so, sometimes people don't always want to. Uh, we get some feedback. We get a lot of great feedback, and we're thankful for it. And it's time for it's a time for thankfulness, etc. But uh, and gratitude. But um, sometimes it seems people like uh, episodes where we scatter a bunch of movies instead of focusing on just one long discussion on one or two. So there's going to be God knows how many movies in this episode. Quite a few. Uh, enough to fill up a, a whole Thanksgiving table, I would assume. So, yeah, very, uh, very excited to to get down and dirty with this one. And it's fun to kind of lean into that whole original um, kind of entryway into this is, you know, if you guys – watch our social media channels and whatnot we kind of started this podcast saying that we are separated by a decade so that was always a big jumping off point for sort of um the origin of ie movies the fact that me and dino are separated by a decade because a lot happened uh in in between those two uh years so it's kind of cool to fill in the gaps and we both come from uh semi-different backgrounds and our upbringings and you know what was appealing to us during those particular years so this is going to be um a fun more than likely lengthy discussion but i am I'm fucking ready for it. <laughs> the man, the man is fucking ready, and you can blame Disney for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably have ranted about this before, but I'll just say this is um, an interesting exercise for me. But I am not a list guy. I don't like to. Uh, I don't necessarily like to make lists about the movies or things that I like, and then argue with myself. I'm very good at arguing myself. I don't, I don't need more practice <laughs> about, oh no, I can't sleep now because number three has to be in the number one spot or something right, like right. that. Nonetheless, uh, we came equipped with long lists of movies uh, ranked or unranked, and we came up with um, we have a lot of backstory first but uh, and miscellany that we have to cover, but we came up with six uh, 
five or six categories, depending on where each of us is, uh, yeah. that we wanted to focus on outside of like, okay, you have to pick the one from the year. Um, right. those There's are a lot of ground to cover. There's a lot of ground to cover. We're going to be here for two weeks, basically. We're going to be so, here, so basically. But Get a beverage, do, sit down. Yeah, get comfortable, please, please, uh, while you're nursing that Thanksgiving hangover. But before we really get into the meat and potatoes of this, uh, oh, would you care to share with us a little bit more info on the title? Of this week's episode, Clash oh, of yes. Two Sevens. Yes, Clash of Two Sevens. Um, right. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me about about the purple ube uh, dessert. <laughs> anyway, um, I'll get that recipe from you. That, that's going to be you. that's going to be later. Um, yes. So, I uh, some people may know that I work in music. I deal with records. I've handled uh, worked had something to do with music for a long time. Um, usually in retail, but uh, Clash of Two Sevens is a takeoff on the Culture album from 1977, which was called Two Sevens Clash. 87 and 77 would be our Two Sevens, so we tried to invert that. I was considering calling this episode uh, Seven in the Ragged Podcast uh, <laughs> as a nod to Duran Duran, um, but uh, or at least to offer something that was a little more 80s, not the way things two 70s, but... Um, we're hoping that people will see the title and think that Mike and I are actually fighting on this episode. So the word (laughs) clash should do that, right? Oh yeah. Perfect. So well, well, uh, set up. So yeah, as Dino mentioned at the start of the hour, uh, we're going to kind of do a little bit of a introductory type thing for this. He talking about, uh, 1977 and his personal relationship with that. And then we'll throw it to me where I discuss uh, a little bit more in depth about 1987 before we start going a little tit for tat on several categories that we've both came up with and our respective film selections from each of those years. So Dino, take it. All right. So uh, I just want to throw out these quick, um, we're going to come around to this, but I just want to throw out these categories. Uh, the the six that I'm going to cover um, would be uh, the sleeper movie of the year. The movie that I want to like more, um, the movie that people will assume that my number one movie is, but it isn't, um, a wild card, uh, the number two movie for each of us, and movies we wanted to like but don't from the year <laughs> in question. Um, yeah, so I okay, obviously I was born in 77, and um, so many movies from that year uh, that are iconic at this point um, – of course, a lot of people will bring the will basically focus on Annie Hall. Uh, certainly, one of Woody Allen's best, his big breakthrough, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and uh, was a good year for Woody Allen with Manhattan too. So sure, he did, sure, he sure. Did, but did any well. did Annie Hall come out first? Um, yeah, I believe Annie I think, Hall yeah. was first out the gate. So. Um, and of course, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a mm-hmm. movie that I watched plenty on TV as a kid. Um, but yeah, th- these is gonna be all. All these are movies that I'm eliminating by mentioning them. I should make that point clear. <laughs> um, not to say that there's anything wrong with them, but these are the movies that, like, you know, I, I, I'm not necessarily going to, you know, discuss The Farmer uh, right. <laughs> just because it came out in 77. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, uh, Rabid, definitely a tough one to, to, to uh, you know, it was hard for me not to pick a Rabid for one of my categories. Mm-hmm. Um, really... Uh, a Cronenberg movie that kind of really the Cronenberg movie for me that really gelled it. Like I'd absolutely remember first time watching, uh, watching rabbit 
and uh, just just the coldness and the you know the the, the doom of it, especially mm-hmm. the bodies being thrown into the garbage trucks. Yeah. Um. Uh. Really, really great. I mean, re- maybe maybe that's where I kind of fell in love with Canadian movies. Um, <laughs> we could just be. pinpointed it. Could be. Um. There's so much, so many Canadian movies. I'm I'm excited to see come out, uh, including one I will mention in mm-hmm. a um in a special pairing uh, shortly. Um. The Sentinel. Uh, sure. You know, I'm Michael Winner is like a special category for me. <laughs> I have this weird fixation on Michael Winner, but it's all like, it's all like uh, pseudo. Th- it's like all like pseudo psychological because the guy uh-huh. was absolute maniac. Yeah, and I, I like I like the Sentinel, and my friend Justin loaned me the book after I saw it, and the book might it's probably even better. But um, there's just. You know, there's it seems like almost every Michael Winter movie, especially everything that came after The Sentinel, needs mm-hmm. an asterisk next to it. Yep. <laughs> uh, like like there's something a little bit like about this movie that's just, you know, his his sadism seeps into it, um, mm-hmm. which he was like he was legendary, legendarily known for um, Black Sunday. Uh, great Bruce Stern movie. Um, one I like a lot. Definitely. Um, great. Um Thriller plot, terrorism thriller plot about the uh, Super Bowl. I think uh, Bruce Stern said it's the one movie he did that he wishes. No, I think it's yeah he that he kind of regrets because somebody could do that because he felt yeah. like he felt like that was actually something That's that right. could that could happen in real life. Um, Shockwaves, Shockwaves. Mm. Um, that's uh, it's Ken Wiederhorn, right? Ken Wiederhorn. Yep. Yeah. Um, Amazingly effective, low budget Florida, you know, um, what uh, aquatic Nazi zombie movie, right? Yeah, yeah uh, it's, a, it's it's quite a genre cocktail with a with an elderly Peter Cushing in it. Too. Sure, sure, sure. Um, who, who does not sound German at all, but it's supposed to be German. <laughs> yeah. um, really effective, and I love it. But it's kind of like, you know, it's it's super good for what it is, but it's like not. I don't know. It's it feel, not all it, there. Yeah, it feels like it, it feels a little bit like it's so spare that it's like maybe 85% a movie, I think. Yeah. But for what it is, I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, high Anxiety. Have not gone back to High Anxiety in a while. The Mel Brooks movie. Yeah. Um, that's one. That's, that's Hitchcock's one, movie. So. Yeah, that from the box set, that is one Brooks film that has still evaded me for some really? reason. Yeah, I got to change that this holiday season, I think. Did, does that mean you like uh, 12 Chairs? <laughs> Fuck, or is that another one, actually. Is that not in the box set? That is in the box set. Yeah, Twelve Chairs and High Anxiety, I believe, are the two that the at least from that era that I haven't seen. Obviously, I grew up with Spaceballs, Young Frankenstein, um, Blazing Saddles. But yeah, those two are still silent movie. I, I've I've seen. Um, but yeah, High Anxiety, a big one. So yeah, talk about that one a little bit. Twelve. Well, Twelve Chairs, by the way, is I re- only recently saw it. Like it was like a gap for me. Mm-hmm. It's not a. It's a lot closer to the. Um, uh, what was it? What was the uh, other one of the other? Um, it's not quite the Mel Brooks '70s hilarity. It's hmm. a little bit more historic. I think it kind of falls into this category of oh, history of the world. Is that the one you were thinking of? No, 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 no. I'm thinking of um, not silent movie to be or not to be. Oh, um, right. it's kind of a little bit more like to be or not to be that it has a bit of a more of a historic angle. It's a period piece. It's hmm. probably more. It's not as over the top hilarious as um, was it Love and Death? Woody Allen's Love and Death, but it's yeah. in that category of like historic Eastern European Jewish tales. Sure, 
So it's kind of like a, it's very, it is funny, uh, but it's a little bit more like, I think there was a period of time in the early seventies where um, those, that specific ethnic comedy angle, but with a period, yep. uh, with a period focus um, mm. was kind of popular. And that's, that's kind of the prism you have to look. You can't look at that movie like, like a blazing saddles. It's not right. going to, it's not going to work like that. It's not that kind of funny. Uh, it's a bit more traditional. Uh, high anxiety. I haven't seen it in a while, and all I, th- all I can, the thing that comes out of my mind, comes to my mind most is um, Mel Brooks singing the song "High Anxiety." High anxiety, <laughs> you win. Uh, is 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 the chorus to it? But it's it's a it's a pretty um it's a pretty great like it's very of the time in that uh, so much of Hitchcock was really being um copied see i don't like actually i shouldn't say that i don't like people saying oh it's a it's a it's a it's a hitchcock ripoff or people Mm -hmm. ripping off hitchcock it just happened that at the end of his life i think the appreciation for hitchcock Mm -hmm. uh i think another podcast mentioned how at a time at this time everyone referred used the term hitchcockian um that (laughs) very much hitchcock's influence was so major that it was just coming out in the form of all the Jolly films, um, all the you know the De Palma stuff. De Palma got raked over the coals for being a Hitchcock clone. Uh, yeah. he, I don't think he really was. I don't think I any. I don't think any Hitchcock clone is going to make *Phantom of the Paradise*. Um, but anyway, um, *High Anxiety* got to go back to. Uh, *Heroes* came out in '77, and *Heroes* oh, yeah. is very well worth a watch, uh, even if um, the the Jeremy Kagan movie, uh, *The Big Fix*, which I think came out '78, mm-hmm. is I definitely prefer it. Uh, Heroes is much more of a hard uh, post-Vietnam or Vietnam like shell shock PTSD drama. Uh, very, very good. Um, yeah. Um, that one's on the shelf. I have that one. Me. I gotta yeah. check it. Yeah. I don't own it. I don't own it, but I should probably fix that. Um, okay. Forgive me for going arty, but uh, Strosik. No arty. Stros- no art. No. No, uh, I said go arty. You've oh, I'm it. sorry. There's no arty. <laughs> I'm like, arty's not going to feel good about this. Uh, poor Arthur. Uh, so, um, no, Strosik by uh, by Werner Herzog. Um, really interesting, really interesting, like uh, European, you know, kind of European slice of life film. But it has this, uh, it has this coming to America and assessment of America vibe to it. I saw it while I was studying German um, that I found fascinating. There, there, oh. there, there's some really like like there's some things in it that kind of really critique American society. Yeah, between uh, um, the two characters, Strosik himself, I think, is Hungarian. Mm-hmm. Um, again, haven't seen it in a while. Uh, Bunuel's that obscure object of desire. Uh, definitely a movie I saw with my um, with my mentor, who was totally uh, a guy who like you know he's, he's the guy who I saw who I saw um, uh, Holy Mountain with, um, oh. and he was totally like an older generation uh, friend who's like, okay, this is what art house was. This is what art house cinema quote unquote art house in the seventies was. So, um, that was, it's really, it's a, that's a fascinating device in, in the obscure object of desire in that, uh, um, characters played by two different people. Interesting. Um, at the, you know, but very fascinating movie, really interesting movie. Uh, the gauntlet, uh, the Clint Eastwood, uh, Sandra Locke movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it cause it's not a dirty Harry movie. But uh, you know, it's 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 pretty good. It's I liked it that it's it's very like anti Dirty Harry because it's kind of like got a uh, anti Dirty Cop vibe, which I'm sure uh, Eastwood was happy to um, to play with at the time. Fire mm-hmm. Sale, uh, you ever see Fire Sale? That's I think that's only an archive DVD right now. No, actually, no. Sell me on this, please. Really, really wacky. Uh, 
um, comedy directed by and starring Alan Arkin. Uh, I liked it. I I liked it. It's, um, it's definitely like got, it's 77, obviously. So it's not necessarily in that envelope of time that, that black comedy was really big, but it has, it's not like little murders or of course, like the pinnacle of Mm -hmm. of like circa 1970, uh, uh, black comedy. Where's Papa? Like it doesn't get any more twisted or darker than that. Um, but uh, it has a little bit of that, and it gets more slapsticky, uh, and it's just it's pretty nuts, but also pretty fun. Um, Sounds great. Slap, Slapshot, of course, recalling mm-hmm. our Nancy Dowd, who we talked about in one of our oh, early yeah. episodes. She wrote yeah. Slapshot, which is just a, a really fun movie to repeat watch. Um, I have to get over myself a little bit and sat, sit down and watch Saturday Night Fever with, with fresh eyes. Uh, you do? Oh, you do. You know why you do, because I don't know if you're aware of this and for our listeners, mm. but Saturday Night Fever is one of the greatest screenplays I've written. I'm just saying that. Is- and, you, and you do know that that part of the reason, besides the fact that I spent years like pretty intensively studying disco and disco history. Yeah. The reason why I have a problem with it is because it was completely adapted from a different subculture. It, mm-hmm. it, it was it was it was an English subcultural study that they just slapped onto disco as if right. it could just like, so, so there's literally a, a great academic text uh, by Tim Lawrence on disco where he refers to the movie as a lie. He actually wow. argues that it's like, it was this huge movie, but in as much as the, not the coming of age angle, that's what I need to watch. That's what I need mm-hmm. to look for. And, and, and I understand, you know, you and other friends of mine really appreciate it in that way in terms of the music history, the musicology of it, like mm-hmm. there's a there's a big <laughs> there's a big problem there. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'm I'm not going to disagree with that. I mean, obviously that that soundtrack is so iconic. What the Bee Gees did was really incredible. But upon what Robert you know, Stigwood did, I would argue. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's just it, is like, a, it is a marketing thing, too. So. Yeah, it, it would it would be. You know, in retrospect, it would have been interesting to see more artists of the time and genre represented on that soundtrack. Because, you know, is it really believable that they're going out to these discos every night and it's just populated by exclusively Bee Gees music? I think not. But yeah, the music is incredible. But yeah, you're you're you hit the nail on the head. It's that coming of age angle. It's undeniably one of John Travolta's best performances. But then the supporting cast alongside him are just as great there's such a gravity to these people and such a reality to them that i just i think it's so fantastic and i don't think that that's a film that gets mentioned a lot for its screenplay but there's just something so naturalistic and real about those characters that i i always love to champion that one for that not getting enough credit in the screenplay department because nobody ever really talks about the thing they talk about travolta and whatnot so i like to Mm. shed more love on it in that regard no that's cool and and again i have to i have to look at it differently and and to be fair i haven't read the screenplay the source i think it was in maybe the times magazine or something the source article is what yep. is, is is that's the sticking point not the screenplay i think it was called tribal rights of the new saturday night if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. yeah and if I, it was it was it was like a story about either mods or teddy boys in england that had just been like slapped onto like the like uh, like everything about music or subculture was a switch to italians in brooklyn and disco music so yeah. it was kind of like this weird pastiche that of course create creates other problems. Anyhow, whatever, that's my hang up and I, I I'll work on it. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, a, mi- a minor one, but I, you know, it, a minor one, but still one that I, I wanted to mention was Between the Lines. Um, I definitely like it. Uh, had a weird relationship with Between the Lines the first time uh, I saw Joan Micklin Silver's Between the Lines, which is a Boston movie uh, about a Back Bay alternative paper and all the people within it. Micklin mm-hmm. Silver was really, really sharp. Um, and really good at dealing with relationships. I think we've talked about her before. Sure, um, yeah. Chili Scenes of which, Winter. That's the thing. Chili Scenes of Winter came out the next year, and yeah. that's that's really the one, if you're going to pick one of her movies. I, I mean, I, I, some would argue it's Hester Street. But Between the Lines is still very good, um, if not perfect, and one I got to host uh, when it had a small uh, theatrical revival. So I'll throw oh, it over excellent. to you. That's my, that's my I got to mention them but they didn't sure. make the final round type <laughs> list. Sure, sure. No, I I, I appreciate that. A lot, lot so, of good stuff. On to 1987, Mike. On to 1987. Um, thank you. Uh, well, you know, to start talking about 1987, I think you can talk about that year in particular uh, without talking about the decade as a whole. Um, Dino and I think a lot of people that know me, hopefully our listeners through, you know, 15 gruelingly long episodes have gotten to know me a little bit better, but I like to think that, um, you know, I've always shared a really deep affinity for films from the 1980s. So as a student of cinema, and I think we've mentioned this in the past, at least I know I have, uh, you can retrospectively say that the decade was certainly more politically correct than say the new Hollywood movement of the 1970s. But I think that that hardly matters with the abundance of great stuff that did emerge from that era. Now, I do want to be clear too, that when I say that the 1980s was more politically correct than something like the seventies. And I think that's a, that comes in because there was a lot more corporations coming in, buying up the studio. So there was a lot of more things like that at play. I think the whole Mm. idea of the artists kind of running loose was going slowly away. But again, that's not to discredit a lot of the really interesting, um, you know, groundbreaking stuff that was going on. Just to remind some people, I mean, this is the decade that Scorsese still made Raging Bull in. De Palma was arguably doing his best work of the era. Again, uh, I don't see him as just some, you know, Hitchcock loving hack. He's he's far more than that. De Palma's brilliant mm. and he was doing yeah, his yeah. best work in this decade. Uh, you know, in addition, auteurs like Cronenberg and David Lynch were certainly pushing boundaries in films like Videodrome and Blue Velvet. Let us not forget about Alex Cox's Repo Man, the Coen brothers, Blood Simple. Plus, there's a whole area of really progressive films like Nine to Five, Tootsie, and Working Girl that addressed inequality and sexism in the workplace that's even more topical today but it all emerged from this decade so there was plenty of stuff percolating outside of the more populist stuff that was packing people in in the multiplexes so just right out the gate i do i do want to say a whole lot about that so So it's um, a blockbuster decade is what you're saying but there's more than just blockbusters to it for sure for sure and i think that that you know it's uh it's it's a big nostalgia trip you know and i i get that you know like the the whole the the 80s boom is still going um although you know like like i'm i wanted to mention you know hollywood's uh nostalgia fueled obsession with the 80s i think we're already kind of beginning to see that crack a little bit and make way for an equally romanticized rendezvous through the 1990s um 
but you know oh dear yeah yeah <laughs> we're starting to see that i mean if you've caught you know something like the fear the the fear street trilogy on netflix and you know other uh television sitcoms we're really we're already starting to see period based 90s stuff you know like so it's getting there now but that said stranger things is still not going away anyway carry stranger, on. yes and we will get to that we will certainly get to that um so but you know with all of this it's it's really made me start to reflect on what it is about this era of cinema that keeps me coming back outside of it just merely being entertainment from my past um so here's an example so i was just recently in disney world I was standing alone in the queue for Big Thunder Mountain Railroad wearing a a vintage uh, Flight of the Navigator t-shirt. And I noticed a woman take a glance at my shirt and she said aloud, more so to the woman standing next to her, but certainly loud enough um, for me to hear. And she just went, that was my childhood. Now, you know, I've always held firm that movies, music, books, they all leave a, a lasting impact that we carry both subconsciously and consciously um, as we age. But, you know, I find uh, particularly with the 1980s and with how prevalent mass media and media consumption became during this time, um, it's just something that the entertainment that emerged during the decade stuck so sharply with viewers coming of age, perhaps more so than any other decade. Sure, that's debatable, but I I find that to be the case. Um, you know, it's it's our personal experiences and memories that are locked away in like our own psyches. But it's these films for the people that truly do love them that act as a key of sorts to unlocking those memories, those personal memories. So, you know, I get it. That might be overly romanticizing things, and that sentiment is easily applicable to films from other decades, but. The 1980s and its films just have a charm that seeped its way into the culture that somehow just can't really be broken for whatever reason. So, um, you know, there's there's a, a few other things that I want to talk about with the 80s. I just feel like there's um, a bit of like a, a rebellious blowback to the 80s. And I think that that could be in stark contrast just because. Of, you know, there's just this whole nostalgia trip with the 80s. Everything, you know, everyone's talking about the 80s. It's been going on what seems like almost a decade again. Everyone's just kind of living through these rose-colored glasses of the 80s. I think think it's probably over a decade at this point, but yeah. Probably, yeah. It it certainly feels like we've just been going through this love affair with the 80s, and I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But, um, you know, I I do want to talk about just a few other things uh, before we get into really um the category so i do want to say that you know i think it's fair to cite uh the teen films of the era the the hughes stuff the brat pack stuff that that represented teenagers realistically and dealing with these deeply relatable struggles that really struck a chord with the youth um but it also as far as the 80s goes i just felt like uh the overwhelming majority of material coming out felt like something every teenager wanted to check out. I mean, you had comedies like the Blues Brothers, Caddyshack, or Ghostbusters. There was, a you know, an, an abundance of slasher movies and action movies. What I'm trying to say is that it, fe- it really felt like few things that came out in the 80s ever felt like your parents' shit that you wanted no part of. Uh, you know, on the contrary... I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't know. I'm not exactly, I mean, they, I think I would argue they still made some movies for, for adults that, you know, that this is still, you know. Oh, oh no, they definitely did. I just don't think it, there, it seemed like that stuff seemed more so in the minority. The majority still seemed, um, 
like there was at least more there that was at least, you know, catching the curiosity of your mind's eye than stuff that you would outrightly dismiss. Well, let me you know, just interject one 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 thing please, about nostalgia, uh, just because uh, obviously the, the, this is another thing that I think differentiates us because each of us is trying to unpack this 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 level of, you know, what it is about the past and what is it about the decade that we were each born in. Yeah. Um, I saw this always that maybe I said this before. I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, but damn, damn, I'm good at it. Um, I always saw this with, with record guys and I and I always, you know, it always gave me something to think about. I feel like the, the guys in question are like doo wop guys. I feel like if you're born in a time and you just kind of missed like the cultural wave of that period of time. If you have an older brother, I have an older sister mm-hmm. uh, who um, in my in, in, in my case. My older sister was the one bringing home like Smith's records when they were new and so forth. Mm-hmm. I feel like I saw this with doo-wop guys also. They were never the age that was appropriate for when doo-wop was huge. They were the younger brothers, younger sisters, the younger siblings who saw it really young, but they basically missed it. So I kind of like l- realized that I latched on to everything 70s probably by virtue of – of um, I know as a fact by virtue of of the age at which I saw Shaft, and also because of um, a garbage bag of of, of purloined uh, uh, '70s Playboy and Penthouse magazines I stole from my neighbor when they were throwing it away. Uh, <laughs> another and, man's trash is another man's treasure. Come on. Well, especially when they're full of like you know OJ Dingo boot ads and sure and, you know and, and and macho cologne from yeah. the '70s. Um, but it was always. I feel like a pattern in nostalgia I've always identified over and over and over again is that people are trying to latch on to the thing that they just missed. So mm-hmm. for us, each of us to discuss the decade we were born in is kind of to highlight that we're each focused and intensely so on the era that we came out of, but we're too young to directly experience. That's, you know what I'm that's yeah, that's totally, that's totally right on. And I, I don't know if you, um, feel this way. Uh, there are exceptions to this rule. I think, you know, obviously it starts in 1969 that that year really kickstarted what would become the seventies and stuff. But, uh, in the majority of cases, I feel like at the start of each decade, I think that it takes roughly about three years before that decade really starts to show their true colors. I feel like, you know, I was born in 87, but I obviously came of age, um, in the nineties. So it was a mm-hmm. weird thing where the culture of the eighties was still so prevalent in my early years where it felt like I was just running through, you know, maybe the first few years of the eighties all over again. But on the flip side of that coin in a very similar, similar situation to yourself, I have an older sister as well. So mm-hmm. while I was still very much being consumed and, um, you know, influenced by eighties culture in the house from, you know, the reruns of old sitcoms to Saturday morning cartoons and films and whatnot, my sister, you know, it was at the boom of grunge. So she was coming home with, uh, Nirvana's Nevermind and Stone Temple Pilots CDs, um, Aerosmith's Pump album, you know, so like I, I was being exposed at a young age to things of the 90s culture that were, you know, ground level. So I was very young, but hearing these things and just wanting more of it. So it was a weird thing where I was very I had one foot deeply um, cemented in the 90s and really being introduced to them because I I had I had, you know, kind of a, um, a connection to somebody who could 
introduced me to what was cool, you know, what was happening. So I knew like what was like the trendy stuff and what was like good stuff going on at the time. But my interests and what I was really, you know, gravitating to was stuff from the 80s because it wasn't until that 92, 93 period where it felt like, okay, the 90s is really starting to emerge. They're really starting to establish itself. Before that, it really did feel like, oh, like, you know, like put on any sitcom from 89 or 90 and you'd be you'd be hard pressed to figure out, like, when did this show come out? Like, when is this actually from? It's a, it's a delicate kind of act. Well, decades are, are you know, sti- are, are stiff, like, 10-year spans, like, but cultural trends don't always follow them, is basically, yeah. you know, is, is what you're basically saying. Right. That, 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 that shifts occur irrespective of when decades begin or end. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think this is, I think that's commonly, I think, I think a lot of people argue this. But anyway, carry on. Sorry. I just think that, you know, in... Uh... In retrospect, you know, like while it seemed like so much was out there during this period in the 80s, it still feels to me like it was the perfect amount of entertainment and not the sensory overload of entertainment that's begging for our attention today. Again, I might be wrong there, but I just feel like that time period just felt like there was so much stuff. There was the music, the television, the movies, all of it. There was no shortage of it, but it still felt like just enough. Now Mm. it's like there's so many avenues of stuff begging for your attention on streaming services and here and there where it's like your brain just short circuits after a while. I don't know if you feel that way, but I really feel like that decade, the 80s into the 90s um, felt like just the perfect amount of uh, of content. Well, I, I'm I'm definitely careful to use the term "perfect," uh, especially when when discussing nostalgia, because you know, definitely not not perfect. But yeah, you're talking not about the, the quality. Era. I'm saying amount, just the amount of like the stuff that was coming out and stuff. I don't, I, I it it didn't feel overwhelming it's, to the point where like I don't think I'll ever be able to see all of this stuff. And there's still stuff that we both need to see, obviously. But it still felt like, oh man, it's like I can't imagine like it getting better as far as the stuff we were getting. Well, that's fair. But at the same, I mean, okay. So in as much as, you know, you're talking about the era before cable television exploded mm-hmm. uh, in a, with original programming and obviously well before the internet and also the era that, um, that B movies were switching to direct to video and yep. there were, le- there was less theaters, but um, I feel like overall output dipped around that time i'm not sure I, I don't have a you know it's just a feeling uh i don't have a quote for it per se but the, the yeah there was i feel like there was a time i've, I've come to this real to, to a similar idea i feel like there was a time where you could have people on television who were quote-unquote pop culture specialists who could mm-hmm. explain to you like the trends in pop culture at that period of time yeah. which of course seems absolutely ridiculous now because there's just you know way too much stuff way too much output mm-hmm. um in general, but as soon as you know, the, the 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 one sticking point for me is like there's there was so much underground stuff. There was so much stuff that was actively you know uh, going on that was not getting any mainstream coverage. In terms, the '80s was the blockbuster decade in not just movies but also in music. Yeah. So there was a lot of stuff coming out from studios and even even the so-called um, mini majors like Orion and whatnot. But there yeah. was there was a lot more underground stuff, especially I'm gonna I'm thinking more in music, but plenty of independent films still being made in uh um 
in the 80s that did, that had a, a decrease a, a, a increasingly smaller window to, to land in. So mm-hmm. there was less stuff. There was a lot of stuff being made with very little chance of it going anywhere as as cinemas are closing and so forth. So I, I don't I, I mean, in, in my mind, in my mind, one of the things about dealing with nostalgia is to a degree we should iron out. Uh, a lot of our emotions about different eras of time because it's human to imagine things were quote better than or whatever yeah. and that every every decade has you know like like i was really in the early 90s in the middle of like the jfk doors oliver stone like salivating over every aspect of how great the 60s were mm-hmm. I was already pushing back because I was somehow a bigger asshole then i was already pushing <laughs> back against people my age who were starting to say wow there hasn't been good music made since the 60s. In my mind, there's always been good music made. It just depended on how much work you had to do to find it. Like exactly. there's always right. been good movies made. How mm-hmm. much, you know, what's your access to it and 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 how hard it was to find. If you didn't live in near a major city or a place that had an art house cinema, you know, you weren't going to see like uh, you yeah, were going to see like a, you buy. a Joan Micklin silver movie unless it was one of the bigger ones, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so. Yeah, it, to a certain degree, I, I kind of like try to take the air out of that because people get very, people get very emotionally invested in an idea of nostalgia, and in lots of cases, it it's reductive. It reduces yeah. a lot of the things that you know, kind of like how kind of like how people idealize the past and they forget things like I don't know, women not being able to vote. Yeah, you know, right. Like, like it was so oh, much yeah. better. It was so much better than yeah, but not if you're black. Yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's oh like, yeah, can't... yeah, exactly. That I, I'm happy that you did say that because that's the next thing that I did want to talk about is that it, it's fine. It, it's more than fine to be nostalgic and, and have deep rooted love for these things, but you also want to keep that stuff in balance, especially the older that you get. You don't want to forget, especially in the eighties, you know, the poverty crisis, the rise of the crack epidemic, um, you know, AIDS. The, the, yeah. the AIDS, the the AIDS crisis, and just just you know the the you know the blatant you know horrible things that went on with the gay community still in the eighties. So yeah, it's very important to keep those. It's not. It wasn't all just you know you know sunshine and roses. Certainly not. And that brings me to really like my final um, monologue, I guess, <laughs> on the 80s and nostalgia in general. Uh, and I guess this pertains to things like Stranger Things. So as much as I love programs like Stranger Things, others have taken aim at it and programs like it um, who convey, I guess, in their opinions, a completely revision- revisionist or rose colored um, take on the era i.e. kids finding themselves on adventures with little more than their bikes and like a slingshot as defense, right? Right. Um, so I feel like my, my you know, enjoyment of something like Stranger Things really has a lot to do with my own personal attachment to the films from the 80s um, and my own personal upbringing. So, I, you know, I feel like a lot of the naysayers and the people that are just kind of sick and tired of the 80s nostalgia thing just like to say, like, that didn't happen. Like, you know, kids like, you know, that 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 wasn't a reality. It just was that it's all just Hollywood bullshit. But I'm I'm not saying that my friends and I discovered a pirate ship of treasures underneath our town. (laughs) I'm not saying things like that, but I will say um, many of those films did reflect a reality that I personally knew growing up in the suburbs where summer vacations consisted of waking up early and knocking on our friends' windows to wake them up, hopping on our bikes and roaming for adventure and sometimes more trouble than we bargained for. 
uh, it was always exciting and hilarious being in the company of people you never thought you'd go a day without seeing, you know, sharing that and those bonds that in many circum circumstances have stood the test of time, at least in my in my personal case. Um, you know, it, it's it's hard for me to even drive down my neighborhood streets some days without like seeing shadows of like me and my friends playing manhunt or like ding dong ditching houses. Mm. <laughs> um, so, you know, it, it's 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 certainly nostalgic and maybe romanticizing, but, it, it you know, watching movies like The Goonies or The Monster Squad or Lucas, it definitely taps into a world um that when you strip away their more fantastical elements rings a lot truer than some people realize. So like, I don't, you know, I, I understand people being exhausted by the whole nostalgia trip and whatnot, but like, again, and I'm fully admitting like, no, I didn't, you know, I didn't have a sloth friend. Like, you know, I, I didn't meet monsters and have like a tree house where we, you know, nothing like that, but it's like, again, going back to how these films are acting as keys to unlocking these memories, they, they leave a, an impact that still strikes sharply with me because a lot of that stuff is like what I did as a kid. So like, I, I'm somebody that firmly can say like, no, like that, uh, it's not just like Hollywood bullshit, that stranger things and stuff that, that they're tapping into. A lot of that is a universal thing for kids that grew up in the suburbs or Midwest. So I like to just kind of shatter that illusion that people think it's all just like revisionist rose colored shit. So yeah, it, it, it connects because like, I'm living proof of that. So I do like to say that much, at least in, in accordance to the eighties and films from it. So basically you're just telling me how much you really, really still love Spielberg. Basically. <laughs> in short. Anyway, <laughs> this all, right. was all a setup to just talk about That's, Spielberg. He's wearing an I heart Spielberg t-shirt right now. Just no one else can see that, but me <laughs> anyhow. All right. I got you. I got you. But you know, yeah, you know, there are many stories just, just, not to rebut per se, but use the word universal. And it's always tricky to say universal because not everybody, not everybody comes from the same place, has the same things, is given yeah. the same privileges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, there were certainly people who said, uh, this is bullshit. Yeah. Even in the eighties, you know, even in the eighties that, 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 that rejected sure. it. Um, anyhow. All right. So, uh, all right. So I eliminated like, I eliminated by virtue of a whole list uh, while you were doing a nice job uh, of, of doing context on the 80s. Thanks, uh, your thoughts on it. Um, just briefly, like, what's the deal with the 70s for me? Like I already said, Shaft. Shaft was really my entree mm -hmm. uh, to a lot of really taking movies seriously. And looking at the 70s, uh, a, a decade that meant a lot to me just by virtue of television as a kid and things that I really, like, grew up with in terms of syndicated 70s television. But um, – you know, I'm a context nerd. Like, I, I, I want to get as much of the social context of the time. So, you know, I was fascinated. <laughs> this is going to sound really... Anyway, uh, I was fascinated by the 70s as a time of cultural upheaval of the counterculture becoming the mainstream culture. Before the 80s was the me decade, the 70s got called the me decade. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of... Um, you know, what we now call culture wars and struggle of the time and uh, and the whole um, Nixon's silent majority speech uh, versus, you know, the direction that culture was going in a more liberal um, in a liberal direction like that kind of strife, which nowadays it's almost like, wow, I spent so much time in the 90s and the early 2000s fixated on the 70s. It's like 
maybe I didn't want that level of culture, you know, of, right, of right. a culture war because look at where we are today in 2021. I digress. Nevertheless, um, it's easy to say that, especially like I don't want to outline the 70s. That's really well tread territory for people in the you know looking at the auteur era mm-hmm. of. You know, the auteur directors, the whole generation of directors that came up and seemingly got free license by big studios to do almost whatever they wanted in the 70s. Um, But anyhow, I have uh, a shitload of movies I'm going to go through quickly uh, just because they're things I'm either holding on to. um, I'm either holding on to that I haven't gotten to yet. Uh, We eat movies, but I mean, you know, I never know what end of the buffet I'm at. Uh, so either (laughs) things that are, either things that are lying around, like there's stacks of movies to my left right now, or things I have to find. Okay. Um, March or die, uh, a a war film from 77, the last wave. I really have not dipped into Peter Weir yet. Mm -hmm. Regrettably the white Buffalo, which I think is, uh, it's a, it's a Bronson movie Mm -hmm. has a, has a certain following, uh, not obviously in the um, vigilante Bronson cycle. Um, one I'm really interested in, I feel like no one's mentioned. I have a tape copy of this movie called uh, The Shadow of Chikara, or Chikara, which is a uh, Jodan Baker like period film. Oh, uh, sign me up. I, I don't. I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, Hot Tomorrows, um, which I think is a first film, and I can't remember who the director is. Nasty Habits, a uh, television movie called Death Car on the Freeway. Um, which, which, wow. basically, which basically sounds like a 2000s like emo band uh, name. Uh, Tintorera has been lying around for a while, um, which I think Mike McCadden spoke highly of because there's a uh, male, male, female uh, threesome in it, uh, which is pretty ballsy. Uh, a big, a big gap. I will, I will admit, I've never seen the American Friend, and I do like the the uh, Ripley Patricia Heis, uh, it's Patricia Highsmith, I think, um, films. I've never seen the American Friend. Uh, September 30th, 1955. Um, I have not gotten to. I have a copy of The Duelists lying around that I got to get to. Ridley Scott, yeah. yeah. The last remake of Bo Jest. Bo Jest. Uh, mm-hmm. Just a, you know, a, a Marty Feldman movie that I you know, really just want to check out some of the period of Marty Feldman before he died way too young. One on one, the Robbie Benson basketball film, right. uh, killer of sheep. I sadly may have missed this on the big screen, like twice. Um, Demon seed, another one lying around that I have not gotten to. And the other side of midnight also all 1977 flicks that, um, couldn't make the list because I haven't gotten to them. Some of them, uh, maybe, uh, Maybe some of our listeners have strong attachments to and are now mad at me. I don't know. We'll see. We, there's a, there's there's way too many of those that we share in common that we have. And so I think we're overdue for a, for a movie marathon at one of so, our homes. <laughs> yes. hundred percent. Um, yeah. And I mean, admittedly, some of them are, 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 are hard to find. I am the, I'm absolutely the person who still pays for Netflix and is constantly looking for something that's like not even in print or streaming anywhere on Netflix and getting frustrated. Cause of course yep. it wouldn't be on Netflix. Um, and, uh, and um, I do have one pairing, one couple of films that I want to mention, and that is um, basically a dual vigilante or – no, not vigilante. I'm sorry. A dual revenge coupling of two movies that one of them really came close for me um, and the other one I like a lot. But I think you have to think about them in conversation. Maybe we'll have to look at them for a, a, a future episode. Yep. And that is Rolling Thunder – Versus Death Weekend. 
Now, a shattering new film from the creator of Taxi Driver. Rolling Thunder. There's a storm brewing in this man. They took his arm, his family, and his soul. His anger is building. And it's going to explode. In Rolling Thunder. Rated R. A house of secrets. A house of evil. A house of death. My God, what's happening? The House, house by the Lake. Starring Brenda Vaccaro and Don Stroud. A film so shocking, you'll run from the theater in fright. The House by the Lake. Rated R. Rolling Thunder, of course, is the Paul Schrader penned, uh, you know, revenge movie with uh, one of my guys, William Devane. Yes. Uh, and uh, and Death Weekend, which is also known as House by the Lake, which is finally coming out. I think there was a mm-hmm. Blu-ray announced of it is the Brenda DeCaro, Brenda DeCaro um, Canadian revenge movie, which is actually a rape revenge movie. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, that uh, that came out the same year, and I think the the two of them in conversation. As soon as I realized both of them ended up with a list, I'm like, they both have major revenge elements. Both of them are pretty damn good scripts and really effective, but also really raw B movies. Oh, so yeah. yes, Death Weekend versus Rolling Thunder is um, uh, basically e- each of them cancel each, each other out, but they're both like really strong and, and and both came close uh both came really close to it uh to my final categories passing nice. it back to you sir well um you know i just want to say again you know we're supposed to be uh zeroing in on the years specifically that we were born in 77 and 87 but again it's so hard for me to talk about one year in the 80s without talking at least a little bit about the 80s in its entirety so there were many banner years that took place in the 1980s um Obviously, the golden age of the slasher film in 81 were things like Halloween 2, Friday the 13th 2, The Burning, The Fun House, My Bloody Valentine, Graduation Day, Madman, etc., etc. But I do want to say um, before we do leapfrog onto 87 – is uh, 1984 and 1985. I always find that these two years really are constantly duking it out for the overall – best year of the decade um with 84 i think ultimately reigning in my opinion i want i I really feel like i mean this is all retrospect look sure it really is but i really feel like 85 especially 85 into 86 movie wise Mm -hmm. was a whole different animal i know that some people argue that the 70s ended i think mcpadden maybe Mm -hmm. said that the 70s ended in the summer of 82 I think 84 from 84 to 85 was actually a pretty big jump. Um, I think uh, I think 85 and some of the stuff that that comes to mind for like 85 and again going into 86 were B movies starting to make fun of themselves Mm -hmm. where you were ending up with like horror movies that were completely completely catering to like having heavy metal like fans by putting like heavy metal soundtracks to them. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, and movies that are like, you know, like, like 84 to 85 is like, look at the first two angel movies. Yeah. The first angel film is closer to vice squad in being like a, a, a bit more dramatic. It's a lot of fun. It's a B movie, 
but it's got a more dramatic police edge. The second angel, avenging angel, which I think is this is like 84 to 85. I think mm-hmm. the 85 is the second one automatically becomes more of a comedy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Return of Living Dead is the biggest one, really, because yeah. not only is it one of the best movies of the decade, but it's self-aware. I think yeah. at that period of time, people were making more self-aware by 85. People were making more self-aware movies in 84. I mean, this is this is just off the top of my it's head. Just, it's hardly know, scientific, but I think in '84 there was a little bit more earnestness, more of the residue of like realist uh, drama, and by '85 there was a lot more like we're 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 looking at the mainstream and, and we're making fun of ourselves and trying to at the same time. Yeah, like, and again, just to just to I I had to put at least a selection of films from both these years to kind of demonstrate why that's such a hard line so you're just so, ramping up to your birth like we're I'm, gonna go through like yeah. conception zygote yeah the whole thing. Okay, I, I just have good. to say like j- just to like because i i don't because i'm not saying that 87 is no slouch either i mean it, it could arguably be the second best year of the 80s it, it very second or third honestly but just to demonstrate why i think the 84 85 period is so hard to decide as far as which one is the best year like for example in 84 alone you had ghostbusters 16 candles nightmare on elm street never ending story friday the 13th the final chapter which is the best one gremlins red dawn indiana jones and the temple of doom purple rain body double police academy the karate kid beverly hills cop the terminator this is spinal tap that's just a very small selection of what came out in 85 84 flip that to 85 you have Back to the Future, Scorsese did After Hours, which is one of his best, The Breakfast Club, Fright Night, Goonies, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Clue, Weird Science, Return of the Living Dead, as you mentioned, Day of the Dead, which is I think has kind of gone and passed Dawn of the Dead for me. I think Day of the Dead has become my favorite. And, and, Day, and Day of the Dead, speaking of, uh, speaking of um, being, uh, you know, being... Um, self-aware day of the dead is is undoubtedly like the bleakest and the most like the most you know misanthropic uh like it's a hard it's kind of a hard movie for me to watch sometimes because the social message of consumerism in the mall from dawn of the dead to me and even the the, you know my (laughs) i think i it's maybe my favorite song just anecdotally anyway my favorite song from the from the goblin soundtrack is called torta in faccia which literally (laughs) means pie in the face uh which is which is that whimsical like carnival music when they're like in the middle like tearing apart one of the stores in dawn of the dead anyway um but day of the dead for me is sometimes hard to watch because it's just so it's a hateful it's a hateful bleak i mean speaking to your point it really is it really is like an underground metal song at that time. It's like a Venom song or something. Totally. Compared Especially to like, coming out the flip com- side, you know, the flip yeah. side of something like Return of the Living Dead, as you mentioned. Compared like, to like Cinderella. It, it, yeah. it, it, it's, it's much, it's much harsher. It, yeah. It, so, yeah, go on. Yeah. It's, but yeah, I, I think in, in recent years, Day of the Dead has become my favorite of the Dead trilogy. Um, going on, you had Commando, Fletch, Witness, Rocky Four, Just One of the Guys, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Bogdanovich's Mask, Reanimator, uh, one of our favorites, Runaway Train, Walking mm. the Edge, Young Sherlock Holmes, Weird Sign. So, as you can see, it was it's very hard be between these two years but i still give the slight edge to 84 um and now 
we finally get to 87. <laughs> I'm just okay, saying, excellent. like, um, now the year of my birth, um, you know, uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm big into 80 cinema and whatnot. So overlooking um, the year in film of 87, it really dawned on me. And this is not even because this is the episode and it's the year that I was born in or whatever. I really just find that 87 was no slouch at all. Like, I, I really do believe that it could be considered maybe the third best year of the 80s it's certainly in the top five at 100 percent a small example three men and a baby fatal attraction wall street empire of the sun the untouchables beverly hills cop 2 good morning vietnam lethal weapon angel heart street smart the gate predator space balls full metal jacket robocop Summer School, The Lost Boys, Monster Squad, Hellraiser, The Princess Bride, The Hidden, one of the best buddy movies out there, Three O'Clock High, The Running Man. Um, Did you say Near Dark? I didn't. No, yeah, didn't get yeah Near Dark, exactly. Another perfect example. So a lot of great stuff, a lot of up-and-coming filmmakers really, uh, you know, kind of making, um, you know, their first statement. Uh, I think I mentioned Hellraiser, but Hellraiser, another one, Clyde Barker. Just... You know, for 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 the people playing at home, uh, does that mean all that list are not? Are you eliminating all those? Um. Yes. Okay. Just double check. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All the ones that I just listed in um <clears throat> in eighty seven uh are are not in my proper list. But again, it's just again just demonstrating the amount of stuff that was coming out that just <laughs> shows you how hard making some of these lists are going to be. So yeah, feel, I am feel, done. feel bad for us, folks. We really <laughs> had to toil here. Blah blah blah. Really, anyway, really here, had to. Here. But that that covers really you know the the monumental glut of content that was coming out in the eighties. So to really kind of uh, fine tune this stuff into the categories that we're gonna be discussing, I just wanted to demonstrate just not only in 87 but the the decade in the 80s just how much stuff really was coming out to um you know make the decisions these hard decisions that we have to make so on that note gonna flip it over to you dino to really get into uh the meat and potatoes of this we're episode. doing our yes thank you sir we're doing our categories so we are starting uh again um we are starting with a sleeper so i i yeah. All right. Well, you, you've managed to isolate the, 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 you know, the years of the 80s you like the most. I can't even do that. I can't even really come down to like the year that I like the most that did this. And I, I again, I, well, I struggle, I feel, I feel I struggle with pain. lists. I feel your pain a lot because we um, in the lead up to this episode, I texted Dino and I said, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of this, but you are like absurdly spoiled in the in 77, just 77, just the sheer amount of incredible stuff from that year. So I, sure. yeah, I, I've been very anxious to hear what your selections are, because I don't even know how you could possibly make, you know, one choice. Well, you know, uh, I, d- delete to taste. Uh, I was I was uh, d- I, I was gifted. It's a curse, really. But I was <laughs> I learned from my mother, uh, frankly, um, the ability to dismiss things uh, mm-hmm. if we're really going to go back into our pasts. Uh, so there's just things I'm just not even going to I'm not even going to touch. And that made it a lot easier. You know, this is a process of, of elimination. But again, um, this is where I'm thinking right now. This is what I came up with for what we're doing at the moment. I don't like lists. I change my mind a lot. You know, what time is it? I'm going to change my mind later. Depends on how I feel. Um, yeah. But I wanted to do this framework. You know, I, I realized, I think subconsciously, I always say that uh, um, since I grew up listening to classic rock radio 
and uh, and then quit. Like it broke me. I was mm-hmm. done. Uh, and and it, like partially because I found college radio and 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 more independent underground music and so forth, but also because of the goddamn classic rock radio Thanksgiving weekend greatest classic rock songs countdown. Yep. Um, I, this is for me what what ruined Led Zeppelin for me. One too many Thanksgiving weekends, and this is Thanksgiving weekend. Um, one too many Thanksgiving weekends that ended as a rule, as always, as as crushingly yes, uh, once again ended with number one being the dreaded Stairway to Heaven. So maybe maybe I wanted to do a countdown with you uh, subconsciously because of the scars that classic rock radio has left <laughs> upon my my psyche. Anyway, okay, so we're going into, into our categories. We are forward propulsion here. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. So, okay, I have... I didn't pick one for most of these. <laughs> I picked one for my for my uh, number two category. So my first category is, is the sleeper film. Um, and we're just going to go back and forth. Dino will talk about his yes, yes, yes. Um, picks for the sleeper of 77, and then it will be the sleeper of 87 and so on. Excellent. And so forth. Excellent. Yes. Uh, so I went with uh, Soldier of Orange, uh, which which I think came out of Survival Run. I have a tape of Survival Run. It is one of, I think, the last three movies that Paul Verhoeven did in Holland. Um, you get uh, two of the major actors that came out of Paul Verhoeven's uh, stable, which, of course, are Jeroen Krabbe and Rutger Hauer, uh, in this um, mix of a coming-of-age story and uh, actual Dutch resistance during the World War II, or during World War II historical application. It's actually a, a quite exciting personal story of a bunch of friends who went to like school together and how they got involved in basically a spy mission and this is based on a real story for the for the the queen of of holland uh oh. in world war ii um it has the uh it's an exciting you know period movie but it has personal interaction to it over the course of of these young men and a couple women um over the course of them growing up from their school days into maturation and what kind of happens to them um and it's a very, you know, it is a war story. There, mm. there, there's, you know, there's drama to it. It doesn't have as much of the coming of age um, focus of a movie I'd love to do at some point. Spetters, Spetters is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Also by Verhoeven, which I think came after this. But I really like Soldier of Orange. And the other one is one, because I had to have more than one for Sleeper, uh, is one I just watched. And uh, I, I need to thank a few people, but... I do that separately. We got to we got to keep this going for being for for the chance to actually watch Looking for Mr. Goodvar. Looking for Mr. Goodvar. Soon from Paramount Pictures. Looking for Mr. Goodvar is a fucking hammer. Um, and it's never been, it has never been in print in the, uh, in the disc era, only on, uh, VHS. There's a great soundtrack to it. That's very 77, very nightlife, very hit pop and disco songs, mostly disco songs, um, really crushingly strong drama, um, that, uh, if you could find it, it is, I mean, if this was in print, if more people could see this, it would, it would be, um, it would be a, a hugely significant uh, statement in terms of um, in terms of you know human sexuality and uh, and 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 actually you know female 
female autonomy, a female story. Um, incredible film, really incredible film. I, I don't want to get too far into it because it's it's very it's very it's very strong. It's very dark as well. But looking for Mr. Goodbar, nice. Uh, I did just get that on VHS, actually. I just got that on VHS. Yeah, I I found it at a convention for a mere five bucks. Got that. Um, uh, People that watch TCM, pay attention to those schedules because looking for Mr. Goodbar does show up from time to time late night on their scheduling. So definitely keep an eye out for that. Yeah, a real shame that that's not out on the disc era because that seems to really be um, uh, one of the highly, um, you know, desired gems of the late 70s. So, yeah, good good pick, Dina. Diane Keaton's unbelievable, unbelievably good in in the lead on that. And it also has a... um, Obviously, Richard Gere, young, you know, Richard Gere's, I think, his first year of um, feature film work. He did like a TV movie in 75 and uh, a very brief but unbelievably powerful um, uh, Tom Berenger. But anyway, over to you. Awesome. Well, I guess that uh, sets me up for my sleeper of 87. Uh, Interestingly enough, one that I thought I had seen before and I revisited last night and realized, no, I had not actually seen this one. So uh, my sleeper pick of 87 is Hiding Out. John Cryer's back. All right. And high school's everything he remembers the first time. Only worse. Let me see your pet. No smoking on the school grounds. John Cryer, Hiding Out, rated PG-13. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Now, I think you are going to appreciate, yeah, yeah. I I think that you'll appreciate this one. Um, I don't know if you've seen this before or, uh, you know, for our listeners, but Hiding Out is a Boston slash Delaware set genre cocktail starring John Cryer, hot off the success of Pretty in Pink. Um, And he appears as a nearly 30-year-old stockbroker with a... Which you can tell because he has a beard, right? Particularly phony beard, I was going to say. Like, horrendously bad fake beard. Um, And he is on the lam after the mob wants him dead, and he retreats back to high school to lay low. Um, It's a pretty fast and furious setup. Um, Like I said, he's a stockbroker in Boston along with his two friends, and they get... Uh, involved somehow. They unknowingly accept um, laudered money from the mob. The gears are, the wheels are already in motion by the time that the film starts. One of his friends are very paranoid that since they've kind of went to the authorities with this, that they're going to be targeted. Cryer and his other chum think that he's out of his, you know, out of their mind. And of course, this is Boston. So, of course, one of his friends is very Boston saying, you know, (laughs) talk to the girly one at the bat, you know, one of those things. Um, But I appreciated that. I did like that it was Boston set because anything that's dealing with stocks and Wall Street, you immediately assume it's going to be a New York set story. So it was very refreshing that this started in Boston. I loved that. Um Lo and behold, uh, the one friend is right. The mob uh, hitmen are after them. Uh, one of his friends is uh, bumped off. And then, um, a cha- you know, Cryer's character is put in a um, protection from the FBI. Uh, the hitmen don't care. So they just uh, target him in a, a, a chase. A starts throughout the streets of Boston and then he gets on, he leaps onto a train and ends up heading to uh, his young, the to Delaware, where his young cousin... Is it and, actually say Delaware or, 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 or is it shot in Delaware and supposed to be the Boston suburbs? Because I will tell you that he, the, 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 the pivotal scene is one of my favorite real locations in Boston. 
um, the old South Station Diner. It's changed yeah. names a few times where he dives through a window and runs around the back. Yep. But that's across the street from South Station, which is one of the uh, commuter train hubs in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually is. It, it does take place. They do say Delaware in the movie. Yeah. Once he gets on the train, um, I think I, I know for a fact they make a very big point of like the camera zo- zooming in on the license plate of his cousin's house. And it's Got Delaware, it. Got it. Um, which was interesting. Again, another place that you don't immediately expect. You th- you would maybe think like Midwest, you know, real fish out of water. But he doesn't mm-hmm. even travel that far. So I was like, this is like I just like the location choices in this one. So, of course, he goes to Delaware. And uh, decides to lay low by bleaching some of the, you know, blonde streaks in his hair and going under as a, <laughs> as a, as a high schooler. Um, so I do want to say, obviously, because this is 2021, modern audiences are surely going to raise an eyebrow at the film's uh, more homophobic attempts at humor and crier locking lips with a teenage girl, um, Annabeth Gish from yeah, Mystic yeah, Pizza. Yeah. Um, but I, I just want to say, I think Hiding Out really remains an underseen hoot. Uh, it highlights a date at a roller rink. Um, John Cryer faces off against a Nixon-loving president who insists the disgraced former president was sabotaged. And uh, the great Keith Coogan um, questions whether he can off himself after failing his driver's test by downing an entire jar of Flintstones vitamins. So, mm. like, I mean, that's great stuff. Uh, this, this is all... This movie also, uh, by the way, yes, th- th- this I was thinking about this at one point because this is yeah. another music video director. Yep, but um, right which is I think where you're going. But I just want to interject. This movie is also, um, well, it was well planned and is usually pretty cheap to find on original soundtrack LP because it also it uses the the pretty poison song "Catch Me I'm Falling," which was a huge hit at this mm-hmm. period of time. In you know, as a free as Pretty Poison, who who are from Philly, Pretty Poison's um basically their their big freestyle song so mm-hmm. when freestyle was really big 87 88 this was their big song that people will remember still gets radio play i'm sorry yeah. go ahead um yeah no great great mention for sure because that's that's very mem- memorable in the film as well uh yeah just one last note uh hiding out was directed by bob giraldi um again you know kind of throwing it back to our music video directors episode where we talked about uh pi private investigation and uh let it ride uh bob giraldi um famously directed michael jackson's beat it video and pat benatar's love is a battlefield music video so pretty cool um you know in 87 was a interesting year for john crier um because, like I said, he just came off the success of Pretty and Pink only a year prior. But 87, Cryer appeared in no less than four films that year. He And three of them, he was the leads. Is that Dudes? Yep, one of Dudes yeah. is one of them. Hiding out. Uh, Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, which is another film I'd love to talk about at some point. And then um, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. So he was very busy in 87. But this one, I feel, gets so... Um, rarely mentioned, and it's a really fun one. So I'm, I'm, I hope I get, you know, shed a little light on this one. Hiding out from '87. I watched it on the Lionsgate Lost Collection DVD, which uh, I know some of those transfers from years ago were, some of them were just uh, VHS rips. Hiding out does look a smidge better than that, but yeah, that mm. this film is definitely um, in need of a of a Blu-ray release to have it look a little bit better in this day and age. But definitely check that one out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, fond, you, me- fond memories of that one, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, though I, I think I, I haven't uh, had a copy in a while. Uh, we're moving on to one I want to like more. So a movie I want to like more. Um, again, I have two. Um, 
the first one is um is rituals the uh the um canadian uh backwoods um suspense movie um with hal holbrook and a whole bunch of um kind of ensemble cast issues i'm really not i'm not usually the person who gets uptight about like the quality of this but apparently the negatives or any any of the original elements for rituals are long gone so the one disc version that's available is taken from a pretty rough um a 35 millimeter print and i guess they you know maybe cleaned it up a bit but um it's a really cool really interesting film that holds holds a certain amount of suspense for me for a certain period of point, a period of point, mm-hmm. so to a, to a certain point, and then I'm kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if it's editing or there's something about it. It's growing on me the more I watch it, and it's mm-hmm. fascinating. It's really, it's this idea that um, somebody is hunting down these uh, collection of doctors who always go to this really remote area of Canada to camp and fish uh, every single year, and somebody is picking them off. And his reason for doing that, living way out in the middle of nowhere actually has to do with the fact that they're doctors and mm-hmm. has a post-Vietnam, um, post-war uh, subtext to it. And atmospherically, it really works most of the time. Uh, it's a keeper, definitely. It's it's a movie that, um, man, I really wish somebody could do more with what exists or maybe there's something that could – maybe one day someone will find something to this film and put out a really beautiful-looking version of it. Um, but Rituals is one that that like – I'm like 75% there on, uh, but, uh, and the other one is roller coaster. Um, Mm, I I have, I have have a bunch of friends who love the movie roller coaster and I enjoyed it. Uh, again, probably one I need to like, you know, I appreciate it as like kind of a disaster movie and so forth. I, I think somebody, I think somebody's put the idea of like, this is a disaster movie. You could just, you know, turn off the roller coaster and and mm-hmm. people will stop that people will not die and, and maybe that's stuck into my mind but um roller coasters you know it's got a lot of schifrin score even though it's late 70s um there's a lot of things about it too like ensemble cast i think timothy bottoms who later played uh who later had a career as uh, a george w bush bush impersonator mm-hmm. uh plays the guy who is um who's threatening to blow up the uh, roller coaster uh yeah you know, I got to give it another shot, I suppose. But I, you know, I, 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 so much about it looks right to me, and yet, not quite there. Over to you. Yeah. No, great, great selections. Um, I do. I'll mention. Uh, you're right about rituals. The that version that you saw, the first disc version, was released by Code Red. Um, many, many years ago. After many, many years ago. Uh, you know, mentioning that they did have it. Finally, did come out. Not in the best. Um 
condition, as you mentioned, uh, because it is a pretty dark film. And I, I think not having the proper elements uh, keeps you from seeing a lot of it. But uh, years later, just um, a couple years ago, Scorpion picked it up and it is now on Blu-ray. So I can't I I think it is important. Scorpion think, and Code Co- Scorpion and Code Red are in the same family. Really. They're in the same family, they're but brothers, I, so. there, there's a there might be a reason why it finally made the leap to Blu-ray because I know that they were hesitant and resistant for years. So I think maybe better elements did pop up. I, it's been a long time since I watched that disc, so I I, too, uh, I, I, I definitely I mean I I'm sure I watched it on on Blu-ray. I'm sure so I okay. I, I could double check it, but it's um. Yeah, it's not exactly uncommon for those two companies to say that they've done color correction or say that they've done something and, well, mm-hmm. it doesn't quite look that good. Sure. Uh, but, again, I, 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 the last thing I want to be is somebody who complains about, like, oh, they didn't do a good enough version on it. It's just yeah. – it's a, it's a movie that's so strong and has such great performances by great actors in it, and it's kind of like – I'm really it, it's extra unfortunate that, that this is the best version we can get for a Blu-ray. But anyway, yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. So um, 87 film. I want to like more. Um, this is interesting because uh, this selection is a film that I do love, but um, there are shortcomings to it. And that would be Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. The best war movie ever made. Jay Scott, Toronto Globe and Mail. Great filmmaking. I've seen it twice. Gene Siskel, Chicago Tribune. A bombshell. The flip side of Platoon. Susan Granger, WMCA Radio, New York City. Overpowers Platoon, Deer Hunter, and Apocalypse Now. Bobby Wigand, KXAS-TV, Dallas. Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Rated R. It's a brilliant film. It really is. Um, And I think that this complaint is not so much a complaint, but it's just, you know, it's a note that I think a lot of people have with this film is that the second half where the troops finally uh, head to Vietnam and go into combat doesn't measure up to the first half's boot camp sequences. That's really what it is. I just think that the first half of that film is Mm. so strong. Arlie Ermey's performance as... um, the drill sergeant, uh, Vincent D'Onforio is just a complete emotional crumbling, um, is fantastic that, you know, it's almost like the film can't maintain that sort of, um, you know, emotion and, and just what Kubrick does in that first half is so polarizing that by the time they reach Vietnam, you think that it can only get wilder from this point and mm-hmm. it does it it's sort of it, the air sort of comes out of the film ever so slightly in the second half so again it's a brilliant film i do love full metal jacket but that's one that i kind of wish that what you get in the first half of that film sees its way through to the end credits and i just in in, in the in all the times that i've watched that movie and you know tried to see if it's just me it just seems to be the same effect it's just that second half doesn't quite live up to what I want it to be. So again, you know, that's, that that's a film that I want to like more with an asterisk next to, next to full metal jacket. So. Right on. No, I could, I could, it's been a while for me, but I, I could see that it gets a little more conventional. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. So one movie that people for in my case, always two, uh, two <laughs> movies that people will assume are my picks for the, the, my, the best film or my film for 77. Um, it's, you know, relatively easy. The first one, of course, is Sorcerer. Suspense. 
adventure, mystery, danger, courage, sorcerer, Roy Scheider in a new film by William Friedkin, Sorcerer, rated PG, starts Friday at a theater near you. Which is very, very... You know, I have I have I have a, the truck tattooed on my arm, um, <laughs> and uh, it is one of my absolute favorites. A very, it would be a very easy pick for me to make it to number one. Uh, my ultimate, you know, it's 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 uh, William Friedkin's. Uh, we're talking about Friedkin again on this fucking podcast. Oh, Billy, Billy, um, <laughs> it's William Friedkin's William Friedkin's remake of The Wages of Fear, the um, Salaire de Pure. Uh, which was uh, Henri Georges Clouseau's film from the fifties, incredible, like grueling suspense film, uh, mostly shot in um, Dominican Republic. Uh, just one of my absolute favorites, uh, Roy Scheider in the lead. The other one is another. Again, if listeners of this podcast remember me gushing about something, uh, it would be Short Eyes. Um, you know, yeah. backed into a corner, forced, like literally, uh, forced. It, you know, to pick one movie. Uh, at, at different points in my life, I, I, you know, at the stream of consciousness, okay, gun to my head, I said short eyes, because mm-hmm. it is one of my absolute favorite movies. I don't know what that says about me that two of the two of the harshest films that came out that year, Sorcerer and Short Eyes, are um, known as two of my favorites, but they absolutely are. Over to you. Right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, yeah, actually, yeah, I that that's interesting because I think I would have had both of those pegged as your favorite as well so <laughs> so good good a uh, good self-examination on yourself <laughs> um okay so the 87 film uh that i would assume people expect to be my favorite knowing that i am a big horror fan especially 80s horror um in general i think that a lot of people will expect me to say a nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors <laughs> It's 1987. Do you know where Freddy is? There's no waking up from this nightmare. A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 3, Dream Warriors, rated R. Now showing at a theater near you. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that one is, um, well, the first original Wes Craven film is one of my top ten favorite films, undeniably. Uh, That said, Dream Warriors is hands down my favorite sequel of that franchise. Uh, Grew up loving that. I always love uh, the team dynamic of that film. I'm, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that whenever they do take another stab at the Elm Street franchise, they're going to revive it in a similar way to Dream Warriors, that team dynamic, because that has such it's such a fan favorite of the franchise. Um, Patricia Arquette uh, leads the cast. You have uh, Lawrence Fishburne in that film as well. Uh, Craig Wasson's in it. Um, Chuck Russell directed it. 
lot of great special effects uh, going on in that. Uh, some rocking with docking tracks on um, the soundtrack. Uh, but that really is the film that really starts to open it up. And it's we start to see the first bit of Freddy Krueger being, um, you know, a, a wisecracker. He wouldn't mm-hmm. become the full blown MTV VJ that we would know until uh, Nightmare 4 the following year. But Elm Street 3 really starts to see him playing a little bit more with a dark humor and the violence. So it's it's that juggling act that we first start to see that kind of makes, you know, Freddy Krueger probably the most lasting of, um, you know, the 80s slashers. But, yeah, I fully I fully expect tons of people to think that Dream Warriors is my favorite from 87. I love it. It's my favorite sequel um, from that franchise and, and definitely one of my favorites from 80s horror. So, yeah, uh, close, but no cigar. It is not my favorite film from 87. So. Over to you, Dina. Very good, very good. Um, the number two slot, the uh, another one. I really, I really, you know. No, wait. I'm sorry. What am I saying? Um, we're going. We're on to wild card. I wild card. card. Yeah. I, I jumped. I jumped. I jumped. Okay. So the two wild again. Two movies. Um, <laughs> just I can't do lists. Uh, <laughs> the two for the wild card selection. The first one would be Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. In this century of great wars. No other compares to the mammoth struggle between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. From this savage era comes a story so big that only the epic camera of Sam Peckinpah could do justice to its theme. Um, I know a lot of people have problems with late Peckinpah. But uh, Cross of Iron is uh, James Coburn as uh, Steiner, a um, a Nazi. I think he is a uh, colonel or sergeant in the really like in in particularly bad late days of uh, World War Two. It is it is uh, Peckinpah. It is his. It is exactly the movie you'd think Peckinpah would make as a war movie after he made Alfredo Garcia. And it it gets so surreal and twisted, and you know his tr- trademark balletic violence. Uh, it gets it goes so far, almost into like the psyche of 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 Coburn's character of Steiner that it gets almost psychedelic. Just mm-hmm. something I could actually say about Sorcerer. Some of the things I like about Sorcerer, but Cross of Iron is a dour, uh, a dour, grueling movie. But um, really, like one I don't think people talk about very much. It's it's you know it came after. Uh, um, Peckinpah's Killer Elite, which I don't think is very good, and before uh, Convoy, which is like the weird Coburn movie that, like the Coburn, the weird uh, Peckinpah movie that um, a lot of people discount. But I think I love it just for what it is. Me too. Me too. It's it's not a it's not a it, it was plagued by problems as every single one of his later movies I think was. But um, and uh, yeah, I I really like Cross of Iron. It's uh it, it's 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 a rough one. It's a rough one, but I think uh, I think it's pretty um, it's it's kind of unique. And the other one uh, for the wild card, again a, a real struggle for me because one of my absolute all time favorite movies is Martin. Uh, you know George Romero's Martin is his favorite movie. You could argue that it's not even a horror movie. Um, which might be why I put it here, uh, <laughs> because it's such an intense and dark character study of what could be a vampire or what could be an incredibly uh, emotionally damaged teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, in 
in the environment that completely reflects like the fragility of of of, of the main character's mind state of the you know Martin Stone mind state. Just one of these areas outside of Pittsburgh that is just in, just totally crippled by deindustrialization. Um, the mood of Martin is to me more effective than I think any traditional horror movie that Romero made. Um, mm. I think as hateful as Day of the Dead, which you brought up before, as hateful and focusing on the 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 the, the um how human interactions fall apart. Uh, by virtue of human frailties, as much as that is part of Day of the Dead, Martin to me feels so much more dark and personal and incredibly sad, but affecting. It works for the story. Mm -hmm. uh, it works for the whole environment. I love the angle of ethnicity from his uh, his uncle, Kuda, and this idea of some vague background that may or, you know, in, into, you know, European, what European ethnicity, I suppose, um, that may or may not include vampirism, but it definitely includes uh, a certain level of mental instability, mental illness. Like that's that's something I really relate to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, read into that however you want. But like there are roots to it and there's decay to it that to me are so much more imp impactful than anything that came out of like the slasher cycle. Like we, mm -hmm. I think you and I have have some differences uh, in terms of uh, how we look at that, but in terms of atmospheric, culture, cu culture, character driven um, horror uh, of the '70s. Like I don't know if it gets any better than Martin. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy you talked about that one, just because it's been so many years since I've watched Martin, um, and there just hasn't been a disc release that's thankfully being uh, rectified um, soon. We'll be getting a really beautiful release of that, um, and I hopefully, think, hopefully they don't decide it needs to be in 3D or some other. Bullshit. Yeah, I, I don't think we need that for sure. But uh, as they've been, uh, I think it's second sight of this, and as they've been trucking along on the transfer, they just actually discovered something that was thought to be lost decades and decades ago is Romero's mm. original cut. They found the negative of his original cut, which I think is quite lengthy. I th it could be two and a half hours, maybe mm. even three hours. I'm not 100% sure. It's certainly longer, but it is his original cut. So now that that's been revealed, hopefully they'll be restoring that as well, because that would be a trip to see, certainly. Um, but yeah, great pick. Definitely a great pick. Thanks. Um, I suppose that uh, means it is uh, my turn to discuss the wild card from 87. <clears throat> and the wild card for me for 87 would be because we can't we can't go this whole discussion without mentioning um, our Israeli boys from Canon Films. So oh we're going to be talking about Death Wish for the Crackdown. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bronson is back in the biggest Death Wish ever. It's either him or us. Drug dealers rule an empire within our streets and beyond our laws. I warned you, I tell her! But the one thing they didn't count on was a one-man crackdown. Who are you? Death. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, rated R. Death Wish 4 starts Friday at a theater near you. I literally yeah. got I literally got texts from a, a, a friend watching this last night. Good, really? Good yes, yes, yes. Oh, yes. fantastic, fantastic. Okay, so yeah, Death Wish for the Crackdown. Um, it is the best Death Wish installment um, 
with Death Wish 3 being right behind it, definitely mm-hmm. for me. Okay. Uh, Jay Lee Thompson takes over directing, uh, definitely ups the absurdity as Bronson aims to overthrow the drug cartel responsible for the overdose of his girlfriend's daughter. Uh, Death Wish 4, it's excessive as hell. Um, it highlights shootouts at every conceivable 80s hotspot imaginable, from an arcade to a video store, uh, perfectly lined up with Canon Films titles, of course, and a roller rink. Uh, Death Wish 4 is just over-the-top fun. I love it, because I think after 3, which I love um, about equal to Death Wish 4, um, this is the moment where they really turn you know, the notch up to 11 on the absurdity and the over-the-topness of these films. Um, you know, after... Uh, Michael Winner kind of lets his really, you know, sadistic, you know, sadist qualities, you know, unload in the rather dirty Death Wish 2. I think we've talked about this before. The Death Wish 2 is a very uncomfortable, grimy movie at times. Death Wish 3 really decides to go um, a little bit more uh, bigger and bolder with with the absurdity. And and Winner was there for that. That was the last one that he did. And then I think Jay Lee Thompson, um, again, one of the only other people that Bronson would collaborate with, him taking over the franchise really just leans into that where they know the beast now at this point. They know what the Death Wish franchise is going and they just let's light the wick and just blow this fucker out of the sky mm-hmm. and that's what i really appreciate and applaud with death wish 4 is just how over the top but it, it's it's endlessly fun it's so much fun that's why i get i get so much more out of three and four than even the first one i understand that the first mm. one is is, a, is an important vigilante new york based um film from the 70s and, and there's tons of merit there but i i there's just something about the original that doesn't gel for me and it's not that i'm not um it's not that i don't like slower more uh slower burn character driven stuff and and death wish definitely has that stuff i just don't think that the payoffs in death wish are um really warrant a lot of the reputation that it's garnered Mm. it's you know what I mean? Like, I, I I understand that it's a respected film, but I, I don't think by any means it's a classic. I just don't. I, I want to love I, I do want to love Death Wish more. But um, again, kind of rolling back to one of your selections, I, I think I, I, I certainly enjoy Rolling Thunder more than Death Wish as far as a vigilante. You, you've mentioned this before, but I can't you, you can't compare the two. What? Yeah, they're they're very different. Rolling beasts. Thunder. Rolling Thunder is not a vigilante movie. Yeah, but I mean, like, just just like the they model themselves so after each other, it was so hard for when Rolling Thunder came out for people not to, like, think about that one. So maybe that's my own hang up, just the way that, like, those two have kind of been talked in equal, um, you know, whispers together. So I, I can't think about one and the other, but it's just, you know, I just I just feel like rolling thunder is the film that death wishes that death wish wishes it could have been i suppose I, I i'm sure death wish fans are gonna get very mad at you for that uh maybe we just have to watch them back to back because uh i, I oh, that'd would be fun that would be fun i Definitely. would uh i would have to say like you really have to put into context 1977 in the united states versus 1974 when death wish came out because um the vietnam war was still happening in 74 yeah, that's true. Seventy-seven, that's true. and a major part of 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 Rolling Thunder, and the character of William Devane's character is that he was a POW and mm. then came back from Vietnam, and yeah. that is the background of it. Versus uh, Paul Kersey, the Bronson character in Death Wish, 
having been like this pacifist and and so on. But I, I hear you. Okay, so yeah. uh, you good? The only thing with that, I do right. want to say, with, just with Death Wish, I know we're like, that's not even the one that I was really talking about, but with the sure. original Death Wish... Maybe a part of it also comes with the fact that he goes on this vigilante spree and he never – I think maybe some people do forget, but he never gets the people that he's actually trying to find, whereas in all the other ones, he does get the people. So maybe it's like – I don't want to say disappointment, but it's almost like – you know, it, I don't know. It, it, it almost feels like – he goes on this assault and he doesn't even get the people that were responsible for the crime. Whereas so, in all the so, other ones. So basically what I'm taking away from here is we have to do a death wish episode. Got uh, it. We, yeah. I think that's basically what we're talking about. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Coming because soon. I hate movies. Anyhow. All right. So, um, moving right along. You good? Yeah. Well, I'm good. Okay. Thank you. Awesome. Uh, we are on to the number two spot. Uh, which I literally, in rewriting my notes, I crossed out like three or four different things for the number two spot. I'm going to go with Robert Benton's The Late Show from 1977. Obviously, we're, that was the clear part, 77. I'm going to go down to the police station, Ira. I'm going to go down to the police station. I'm going to get a private detective license. Mark Carney and Lily Tomlin are the oddest couple of detectives you'll ever meet in The Late Show. If we teamed up, we'd be great together. He's gonna be nervous. He'll have a gun. You know what? <laughs> they have absolutely nothing in common. Uh, you're pretty, in my mind, you're a pretty old-school kind of person. I'd act like a lady with it. Except the stolen cat. Somebody stole Winston. Somebody stole who? A case of blackmail. He sounded like a truly desperate character. A couple of murders. <laughs> Total lack of communication. Get in the way. Don't let him get away. Take Do it easy. Take it easy. Go get him. You crazy. You could get him. I could get a heart attack. That's what I could get. Art Carney and Lily Tomlin in The Late Show. Rated PG. The Late Show is a really curious hybrid of a retro noir film and, and um, buddy comedy. Uh, that's very lighthearted, and it puts Lily Tomlin and Art Carney together um, to basically solve this mystery that that they get that they get stuck in. And I discovered this relatively late. I would say in the past five, eight years or something. No, past five years, I think. Finally got to it, and it is such an incredibly charming movie with such a great cast: Bill Macy, um. And uh, one of my favorites, Eugene Roche, who's in an unbelievable amount of television, but I always think of him as one of the police chiefs uh, in a world captains in um, in uh, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem. But huge body of work. I literally just saw him play uh, Marky Post's dad in one episode of uh, Night Court, acted into the 2000s. But the the Late Show is so charming because it has you know it's years after. It's years after uh, what Altman did in The Long Goodbye in using the noir, the noir concept to kind of critique the culture of the 70s. But you have this old, old, like semi-retired, like down on his luck detective representing the old noir era, the old L.A. era in, co- in conversation with this, the flaky, very 70s, very hip young Louis Tomlin and how they kind of like come brush up against each other. It's just... It's a very 70s movie, but I think it's a really charming one that I can put on and just enjoy at any time. There's really good dialogue. Again, Robert Benton directed it, but he has a huge body of work for for, for writing. Um, 
and uh, he, you know, he made Kramer versus Kramer like a uh, mm-hmm. year or two later, um, and uh, just immensely enjoyable, uh, charming film, The Late Show. Excellent, excellent stuff. Uh, yeah, that's one that I definitely need to add because I know we've spoken about that before. Um, big Art Carney fan, so yeah, that's sure. a solid one that I gotta certainly check out. Okay, well, I guess that leaves me to discuss my second best film of 87. I think people that know me um, deeply probably are not going to be surprised with this, but they might even be surprised that it's not the number one spot. Um, But nonetheless, my second best film of 87 would be Adventures in Babysitting. From Touchstone Pictures, three normal kids, one dependable babysitter. What could possibly go wrong? I have always loved Adventures in Babysitting. I have the one-sheet poster um, on my bedroom wall, one of the only posters that my wife actually likes. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's like, that one can always stay. I love the colors, and I think right. the movie's really funny. So, <laughs> so awesome. Got that made. But yeah, uh, Chris Columbus's directorial debut um, – led by the always beautiful, always terrific Elizabeth Shue as um, a teenage girl who is babysitting a few kids, and then she has to travel into the city, the heart of Chicago, to retrieve one of her friends who ran away and regrets it now. Uh, And of course, hijinks ensue. So much fun in this one. So many great lines. Um, Everybody's wonderful. Uh, Keith Coogan from Hiding Out also appears um, in this film as well. Uh, Great song choices. Of course, one of the most uh, infamous scenes is when um, the kids are trying to flee some criminals that they've uh, found themselves in the crosshairs of. And they walk into a blues bar in Chicago and they need to get up on stage. They're not allowed to leave without singing the blues. So they go up on stage and, of course, have to sing and stuff. It's a great sequence. Um, awesome stuff. So that's really the film that would put uh, Chris Columbus on his way mm. to making things um, like the rarely um, – discussed heartbreak hotel which is one that i wish more people would check out that's a really fun film then of course he was two home alone films and the first two uh harry potter films mrs doubtfire he's uh, maintained a really impressive career but yeah adventures in babysitting tons of fun um one of my dream double bills um at one of our happy places the mahoning drive-in was always to see adventures in babysitting and don't tell mom the babysitter's dead on 35 millimeter just two uh fantastic babysitting comedies both of which have keith coogan in them and luckily my dream came true the mahoning did it this past season and they wow. had keith coogan there in person who that's right I had, that's right i had yeah it was great i had met keith before um i was there early enough helping out so just kind of hung around with keith um for a little bit he was telling us great stories and whatnot obviously for people that don't know keith um is the grandson of jackie coogan so he's been a hollywood family you know he's been in a hollywood family for many years tons of great stories and really humble guy so that was a absolute bucket list uh screening but yeah 
adventures in babysitting that that's the, just the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> really fantastic nice. stuff so yeah that's it that that's one has aged saying. remarkably well I, I i'm surprised i'm surprised at some of the people i know who still love that movie yeah uh, it really uh, has it, and uh, I don't know if I say the same thing about Don't Tell Mom, but I, that one I have not seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, I have four movies for the next category. I will be brief. Um, wanted to like these movies, but didn't. Um, first one is The Pack, which I think is uh, maybe – is it Frank? I think it's John Frankenheimer's. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a Joe, Joe Don Baker movie. I in have had the idea multiple times that I need to own every single Joe Don Baker 70s movie. Um it didn't quite do it for me. The whole story is basically that all these people bring dogs on vacations to the woods and then leave them there. So the dogs have developed a pack that are a pack of killer dogs. Um, okay. <laughs> a little undercooked for me. Um, semi-tough. Burt Reynolds is Billy Glide Bucket, a running back who really knows how to score. Chris Christopherson is Shake Tiller, a wide receiver with great hands. Jill Clayburg is Barbara Jane Bookman. Her daddy owns the team, and she plays with them in semi-tough. It's a movie about the world's greatest game, and it sure ain't football. Semi-tough, rated R. Now showing at a theater or drive-in near you. Check your newspaper for feature time. Uh, I'm sorry, Ben. Uh, <laughs> Semi-tough is um, is a, a film by Michael Ritchie um, that, unfortunately, I think, uh, wastes uh, three lead characters. Um Tremendous actors, all three. Uh, was it? It's Burt Reynolds. Um, I'm going to forget names now. Chris Christopherson, Burt Reynolds, and um, I can't. The uh, star of an unmarried woman. I can't think of her name right now. Uh, I don't know. It just didn't quite gel for me. Airport seventy seven. Uh, you know, for the airport movie that came out the year that I was born. Um, really underwhelming. The big device in it seems to be that there's uh, so actually some real um, technology that um that uh that i think with the navy that can bring up a submerged plane that is on the bottom of the ocean and it just does not have anywhere near the chaos and just ridiculous entertainment value of 75 or the you know it completely insane airport 79 the concord that was joe clayberg by the way i can't i i felt bad joe clayberg oh, it was in semi-tough um anyhow and the last one is Definitely the weirdest by virtue of how badly this one is aged, but it's uh, a piece of the action. You'll want to laugh. You'll want to cry. Not since to sir with love have you cared so much. Sydney Poitier. Bill Cosby. Delicious main attraction. James Earl Jones. A piece of the action. It's different. It's exciting. It's special. It'll tickle your funny bone and touch your heart. The third of the trilogy between um, between Sidney Poitier and Bill Cosby. Uh, I love. I like up. To, I like um, up down Saturday night, I, which is the first. I love. Uh, let's do it again. The second great guest stars and so forth piece of the action is the third um man you want to talk about something that has aged badly there's literally a scene where cosby's character is consorting with a woman and uh she's basically like uh uh you gonna come out and dance with me or am i gonna have to you know 
am I going to have to uh, cry rape or something? And he's like, doesn't oh. make a difference. Doesn't make a difference to me. There's like a oh. there's literally a rape joke between with Bill Cosby in this movie, and it's just it just doesn't. I mean, that's not the main thing, but man, can I not forget that shit? You can't forget that any more than the than the episode of the Bill Co- of the Cosby Show where he mixes his special potion that is an aphrodisiac into uh, into into the drinks for all the people. That's a, that's a joke line in an episode I remember oh. seeing. Uh, wow. first Anyway, piece of the action. I really was hoping, as the second movie in the in the in those in that trilogy was better than the first, really kind of let me down. So those are my four. Bummer, bummer. Um, well, that one we talked about that one off air before. I did not have a f- film or films that I could think of um, that I wanted to. You're like. just too nice of a guy. I'm just too nice of a guy, and that was too easy. I know. The, I know. Yeah, the '80s have warped my mind so much that I'm just convincing myself that I I like a lot more than I say. But I mean, fuck, man, '87 was really good. Like, and even even if there's films that. Um, I don't love I still like well enough that I would never say, oh, I don't like them. Like, no, I, I absolutely do. Um, so I guess I'll just jump ahead to our final category. I suppose it's fitting too to let you end off since you're the you're since you're the earlier beauty. You know, we want we want to do age before <laughs> we want to do age before beauty on this. I'm the know? old so. fuck is what he's saying, folks. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, and uh, I, you know, this really worked out pretty well considering that we are recording on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, for my best film of 87, I did rewatch this on Thanksgiving, which is pretty much a tradition, but I had to stop myself and think, am I selecting this because of the time? But no. I actually made this list even before rewatching it on Thanksgiving and came to this conclusion. So uh, that means I'm definitely right. Um, so <laughs> my my the best film of 87 would have to be John Hughes's Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Oh, fuck. During holiday travel, some people get delirious. Some get delayed, and some get <laughs> Del Griffin. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. Neil Page got all three. I was on my way home to spend a nice holiday with my family. Instead, I'm in a motel bed with a stranger. So instead of Thanksgiving with his family, he's spending three days with the turkey. Three Paramount Pictures presents Wilma! Steve Martin. You ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. You see Don Ho while you were there? See the second show. That's the best one. Is that right? Yeah. John Candy. Why are you holding my hand? Where's your other hand? Between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. In a new film by John Hughes. Planes, trains, and automobiles. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Perfect. Yes. So, yeah, I I know. Talk about perfect timing to do this on Thanksgiving weekend. Um, So, yeah, planes, trains, and automobiles. I will say it's obviously the essential Thanksgiving film um, with Steve Martin and John Candy delivering some of their strongest performances of their career. Um, I would say the film ranks as one, 
if not John Hughes's best film alongside 16 Candles and The Breakfast Club. Um, it, it really has a beautiful way of melding drama and comedy seamlessly. It's, it's this endearing uh, road trip buddy movie that's just absolutely laugh out loud hilarious and as as heartwarming as pumpkin pie frankly um you know it's one of those things where like the older you get i think that planes trains and automobiles only gets better at least yeah for me i think I, i just think that these things just get they get it just gets so much better and i think that john hughes you see it in real time with planes trains and automobiles you know he's a year removed from doing ferris bueller's day off and you see um just a noticeable leap in maturity and uh you know writing and hughes was always a great writer dating back to his time on the national lampoon but you really see um the character work, um, the emotion and, and the directing of the actors has just improved or, you know, just it's like tenfold what he gets out of Candy um, and Martin in this film. And it, it it's just got such a friggin breezy pace to it, too. I mean, this movie just moves. It, it's it's it also moves. John Hughes, John Hughes using adults. That yeah, makes, I think that makes a big difference. But in terms of the buddy stakes, I literally had to look it up and I'm like, oh, oh, right. OK, Midnight Run was the next year. Yeah, okay. exactly. Because uh, because, um, yeah, uh, this is really like I, I'm pretty sure I saw this first run. Um, nice. And it was always like, this is a great film. Uh, and, and yes, part of me, part of me chafes at the idea of saying anything John Hughes made is great. But um, <laughs> and that's also, you know, retrospect and reassessing a period. But um, no, I, I, I do love this movie. This movie is just it's amazing to think that I could have been 10 years old when a movie that became like an instant classic and an instant holiday classic Mm-hmm. Uh, came out and uh, and and that's that's absolutely what this is. So that's a it's a very good choice. It's a really good choice. Thank you. I mean, I, I just you know just and again, it it wasn't easy just looking at the amount of films that came out in this year. But then when I really happened upon that, I'm like, it became so obvious to me. I'm like, oh no, like this really is it. And and you're right. Like this is Hughes directing and working almost exclusively with adults, and it it almost pains you that he didn't do it more. In yeah. his no, limited, in his limited career, um, which is a shame, and hey, I, I I encourage more people to check out his last directorial effort, which was 1991's Curly Sue, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of great adult performances in that as well. I oh, I was champion that film; that was a childhood favorite of mine too. But yeah, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, uh, fantastic film, perfect for this time of year. And uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it's age or what have you, but I I do think out of his limited directorial career, I think a lot of people always stray towards uh the breakfast club as being his his master work but i I think it's planes trains and automobiles i really think that's that's his greatest film i think breakfast club and any one of the brat pack um driven films are going to be the things that he's perhaps more remembered for but it's planes trains and automobiles best film of 87 period done (laughs) nice very good uh well you know I, I struggled with this also I certainly you know I, I I threw my number two out that most people I think don't even know exists and uh, yes I a part of me is like ugh, why can't I pick something more obscure but um look from <laughs> 1977 for the best movie of 1977 for the movie that I've watched the most uh can watch like right now if I felt like it, it it's just it has to be Smoking the Bandit it has to be Hal Needham Smoking the Bandit. 
Bills. Goals himself banded one. Now put the pedal to the middle. I'm 10 10 on the side. Jerry Reed calls himself banded two. We don't really have to cook. And Jackie Gleason, a sheriff, Buford T. Justice calls him a whole lot worse. I gotta barbecue your Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, and Jackie Gleason in Smokey and the Bandit. Rated PG, and that's a Big Ten for good, buddy. At theaters everywhere, check your local newspaper. It's it's um, a dumb movie. It's a fun movie. It's a movie that I don't even know why. I went through a period of, of, of time in the late 90s where I watched it like three times a week for like a couple months. I don't I have no idea why. It was, you know... Hitchcock, one of Hitchcock's favorite movies at the end of his life, since we mentioned Hitchcock earlier. It, it, Burt Reynolds at the peak of his powers, to me, is an incredible thing, even though I, I've waded through so many movies of his that are poor and so many decisions that he made that were poor. I will have to say that uh, our friend 70 Movies we saw in the 70s did a frequently hilarious, if you like dry humor, uh, episode on smoking the bandit which was it was um scott and ben and a guest and uh and they um they did a really nice job on it and uh i, I you know this is one of the top 10 movies of of the year um maybe it's obvious maybe it's not our tour enough but um i i love jerry reed so much mm-hmm. in, in, in films he's so likable in this the chemistry between sally field and Burt Reynolds, which I think, according to that podcast, I believe, uh, I learned they were not yet together in real life. Um, and uh, Buford T. Justice, played by uh, uh, Jackie Gleason, um, I still feel is a, is, is a riff off of um, uh, Clifton J- um, um, of the um, Sheriff J.W. Pepper uh, for, uh, character from the Bond films. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Oh, my God. I totally forgot to mention The Spy Who Loved Me, by the way. Uh, yeah. Of course, one of the of great. May often considered the best 70. See, I, I there's too many movies from 77. You called it, mm-hmm. uh, often considered the best Moore film. Uh, it might be, I think it might be, but anyway, regardless, um, I definitely think that the um, Sheriff Justice character is a riff off of um, uh, what's it? Was it, is it, is it Clifton James, uh, the actor who played uh, JW Pepper? So. Uh, but <laughs> nevertheless, that is completely like Gleason's amazing character. Um, it, it's, it, it's, you could call it a shit kicker movie, uh, made for like Southern drive-ins, but it has all these different things in it that are made to appeal to people in other parts of the country. There's this weird little, very seventies concerted effort to have a mix, a multicultural mix of truckers. And, uh, it's, it's just, uh, when it hits, when the right songs hit and when the right lines hit, um, it, it's completely a piece of like, uh, perfect 70s artifact and um yeah i you know in terms of like a movie that is that year uh that speaks to that year but one that just holds up so it holds up so well i've never actually made it through the second movie the second Mm -hmm. movie has so like even like within 20 minutes it is lacking so much of the charm and this Mm -hmm. is hal needham hal needham was never a great director you know by any means but um he really hit it with smoking the bandit and uh that's my number one for 1977 that is fantastic and i know one mark nelson will be thrilled that you selected smoking in the bandit because i believe yeah. that is his favorite film i only just... oh no 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 it's cannibal run for mark 
Cannibal Run. Well, but but you know, in, hand in, hand, right? <laughs> in the fraternity of people who remember Burt Reynolds' good movies, mm-hmm. uh, they're very closely linked. But yes, yeah. yes, very good, good, good call. Mark Nelson, by the way, shout out to our friend Mark Nelson. Not only a massive James Bond fan like myself, but also the general manager of the Mahoning Drive-In. We're just we, we just we keep talking about the same shit here, folks. Yeah. You should know that by now. <laughs> um, but uh, a huge um, a huge Burt fan uh, as well. So um, yeah. Man. And that's where we're at, I guess. That is, I'm so happy you picked that one because I only just experienced uh, smoking in the bandit for the first time last year. God, or really this 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 past year, I saw it at the Mahoning Drive-In when Joe Bob Briggs came to town and he did his uh, How Rednecks Saved Hollywood. Got to experience it on beautiful 35 millimeter, sold out crowd. It it was the perfect circumstances to see that. So I'm happy. Sometimes you go and you wonder how long, like why you waited so long to see something. But when you have an experience as memorable and grand as the one that I had with Smokey and the Bandit, I immediately was like, I would have not wanted to see this film any other way so and i think i think it i think as as simple and it's not a complicated movie but as simple as it is it gets better and better we, we, yes you know the, the, just the interplay between reed and reynolds um yeah uh it, it's full of like you know uh, it's full of abrasive bizarre and sometimes racist language mm-hmm. but we're meant to laugh at the racists in it and it's just it's got this breeziness to it that is um that is just a, a you know an a, a, an imagined piece of 1977 that I like to I'd be happy to climb into at any time. Yes, fantastic, fantastic choice for your favorite film of 77. So I believe that wraps us up. I believe we're getting to a ceasefire on our clash of two sevens episode. This was yes. a blast, sir. Very very awesome topic. A lot of great ground covered. Awesome to really just talk about. Um, quite a load of films and different directors and whatnot. So I had a blast. Very good. Laz did I. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, uh, happy Thanksgiving weekend, everybody. Happy almost the end of what year is it again? 21? 20, right. 2021, I think. Right. Yeah, 2021. <laughs> and um, we will see you next time on I Eat Movies. My friend Mike, I hope you eat more movies. Yeah.